Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. February 1902 is full of surprises, not least for Lord Kitchener, who has designed his great drives which are similar to hunting grouse on the moors of England. Lines of men walk side by side, 20 yards apart, driving the Boers before them until they are squashed against the blockhouses and posts where they are forced to surrender in droves. Well, that's the theory. Sometimes it worked, sometimes not. In the case we'll hear today, where Kitchener's second major drive was launched in the Free State, the theory and the practice were slightly out of kilter. Because Major Rawlinson and his superiors were after the crafty fox, General Christian de Vett and President Steyn, should they capture these two, the Boer War would surely splatter to a halt. De Vett and General Jan Smuts, along with General de la Rey, were the symbols of freedom for the Boers, and it was vital for the British to bring them to book. In the eastern Transvaal, General Louis Boerter had fought his last battle, as we heard in January, and was now making preparations for a shift in strategy and region. He had decided that his commando would serve no purpose remaining in the Transvaal, and he was headed to northern Natal, where he believed he would have more success. Lord Kitchener, meanwhile, had had an epiphany. Rawlinson had had one too, but far earlier. Other British commanders had similar moments when the phrase Eureka surely must have escaped their lips. The British drives had been designed as daytime operations. At night, the thousands of men would stop and make fires for supper, which is when the Boers would slip between the clearly demarcated fire areas of sleeping English and make their escape. The epiphany was really a set of orders that altered how the British army would deal tactically with their enemy. They pretty much use some of these tactics to this day. In fact, when I was a soldier in the 80s, we used some of these tactics, which the Americans also employed in Vietnam. In a nutshell, it is understanding that owning the night is essential in winning any war. You control the darkness, you control the coming battle. When walking patrol or moving a group of men of whatever size, one of the most important things to do before the sun sets is to confuse the enemy by pretending to be in a place You are not. If you do this, then you as a soldier or general have shifted the initiative. It's trickery that wins a guerrilla war, not honesty. So Kitchener made up his mind to revolutionize the drive system. The result was what he called the new model drive and was to be a marvel of military precision involving drill and organization and trickery. As you'll hear, when you're drilling and organizing and tricking, every single link in the chain had better be on point or a guerrilla movement will exploit the tiniest gap. As the dragnet drags itself over the open felt, the commander must be in control of both the moving forces, the soldiers marching on the felt, as well as the stationary forces, those in the blockhouses and military posts waiting for their prey to appear. And these men must be wide awake, for it takes but a moment and the prey dashes to freedom. As Rain Kruger points out in his book Goodbye Dolly Gray, Herodotus tells us that when Darius the Persian conquered the islands of Chios, Lesbos and Tenedos, his men used the method of a dragnet. Herodotus wrote, Taking one another by the hand and forming a line from the north side to the south side, they march over the island hunting out the inhabitants. Just so would Kitchener hunt out De Vett, Stain, and their fighting men in the northeastern Orange Free State. And we have heard many times how Kitchener, while useless at logistics earlier in the Boer War, 
was now far better at the finer details of moving men and horses around. Plans were drawn up to the very last detail, routes for every man, times and places to halt, water and provisions, reinforcements, horses, ammunition, forage, bandages. All would be part of a net so closed meshed that as it was drawn across the felt, every yard would be covered. In fact, the men were twenty yards apart. No living thing would be able to escape. Fresh troops were drafted in from the north and south by rail, food depots prepared, and blockhouses informed. Then the orders were sent to each unit on the drive, and they included Order number one, every man from the brigadier to the last native to be on duty and to act as sentry for one-third of the night. Two, front line, each squadron to be allotted a length of front to be covered by entrenched pickets of six men, guns loaded with case to be posted to front line. Case is a kind of anti-personnel shell which was loosely filled with lead or iron balls similar to grape shot and lethal at short range. Order three, rear line, each of six men, 500 yards to rear, if attacked to fall back into the lager. Order four, sham front line, to be taken up at daylight a mile or two in front of the real line and evacuated after dark, fires to be burning along it and on no account occupied after dark. This technique is very much in use today, although patrols would now backtrack in a kind of U-shape, reversing their course but not directly over their existing tracks, then take up position in a place where they could observe their own path to catch an enemy following them unaware. Order number five, cover and obstacles, advantage to be taken of natural cover. Order number six, lights. No fires or smoking and only whispered talking. This is really surprising because when I was trained, if you lit a fire or smoked or talked at all, you'd face immediate detention barracks or worse. Order number six, subterfuges, tricks of every sort to deceive enemy as to strength and position of real front line. For example, gaps in the smouldering fires. This is much more like the modern warfare that I know. Most of what we do is keep all information of any sort away from the enemy, including much more, such as binding our rifles with cloth to keep them from glinting, sticking fat tape on metal objects to reduce sounds, no brushing of teeth, or the use of smelly deodorants, which give a person's position away for many meters at night. No signs, no smoking at all, no fires. Do not drop anything on the trail. And of course, much more. When the top brass in England were made aware of these new tactics, they were ecstatic. We are much more optimistic here, wrote Prime Minister Chamberlain to Sir Alfred Milner. The representatives of the Boers in this country and in Holland are almost in despair. Back in England, Edward was crowned king after the mourning period for Queen Victoria had ended. Parliament had met in January, and the crisis of bad news in December 1901 had faded somewhat. MPs were concentrating on whether or not to vote for a new education system. When Chamberlain drove to the Guild Hall in February, crowds cheered for the Prime Minister as there was an atmosphere of imminent victory. As you will hear in a later podcast, there was still the shocking capture of Lord Methuen to come in March, which would again shake the British resolve. Meanwhile, back in the Free State, the summer heat baked the British troops as they began their march towards the blockhouse line, and waiting between was General Christian de Wet. The game of cat and mouse was extraordinary. For example, 
British troops were now breaking every single Boer mirror they could find because the Boers were using mirrors to flash signals to each other. In fact, de Wett was still receiving really good information from his scouts via the heliographs. Heaven knows how many years of bad luck compounded for these troops, and perhaps as many waited years later for their turn to go over the top in trenches of Western Europe. Perhaps some of these men would cast their minds back to the isolated farmhouses of South Africa, where they had bayoneted sheep and blown up buildings after throwing mirrors belonging to Boer women to the ground. It was 13 years later, of course, so perhaps not. There were two lines of blockhouses in the northeastern Free State, a northern branch from the railhead at Heilbronn by Frankfurt to Boerters Pass in the Drakensberg Mountains, and a southern line from Kronstadt via Lindley and Bethlehem to von Rinnens Pass. A third line had been solidified long before following the Drakensberg Mountains towards the central railway blockhouses. What this did is form a rectangle 65 miles by 140 miles which was fully enclosed, and lurking within this rectangle was their quarry. General Christian de Wett. But he had been receiving updates about British movement, and although he had no idea about the super-secret new model drive, he was alert enough to realise something unusual was afoot. Kitchener had arraigned 9,000 men across 54 miles of countryside in a perfect line. You have to admire the precision. Facing this serried rank was de Wett and 1,800 men, as well as 600 head of cattle. Surely the game was up. President Steyn at this point was actually outside the dragnet, but De Wett and 1,800 men were inside. Remember last week I explained how De Wett had ordered his commandants to a place called Slangfontein, or Snake Spring, but Van Koller and Van der Merwe failed to arrive. He also received bad news that Feldkornet Taliat and Prinzler were caught in the open, hiding from the British, and most of the men were dragged away as prisoners. So he was left with Commandants Mentz, Bester, Silius and Mears and was facing British soldiers marching almost shoulder to shoulder across a vast front heading directly for him. On the 6th of February 1902, the commander moved rapidly to a farm about 12 miles from the lindley Kronstadt line of blockhouses. The vet's mobility had been curtailed by the fact that they had to drive these 600 head of cattle along with them, which was their main source of food. They waited until dark on the 6th of February. Then he gave the order for the men to move out and to cross the line of blockhouses away from the paths and roads that crisscrossed the felt. However, the cattle disappeared into the dark. Without my being aware of it, they had gone astray in the darkness, he wrote later. Suddenly, we found ourselves at a wire fence. The darkness was so thick that it was only after we cut the wire that we discovered we were close to a blockhouse. But the occupants did not respond to the sound of horses' hooves and the clinking of metal as the fence fell away. Although the house was not more than a hundred paces from us, we could hear and see nothing. And so de Wett and his entire commando managed to ride their horses through the gap in the fence without anyone inside the blockhouse being aware of their presence. That's because, as Rain Kruger reports, they were asleep. 400 yards later, de Wett stopped his men to assess the situation. Behind him, the blockhouse inmates dreamt their dreams. Further back, the thousands of soldiers were in their trenches, freshly dug behind rocks, silent and waiting the possible attack by de Wett, because surely he was now panicking as he was squeezed against the line of blockhouses. 
General de Vette then needed an update. He was incredulous that they'd made it across unscathed. I sent a burger back to see if all the men had crossed safely as well as the cattle. Amongst us were old men and youngsters only ten years or even less. The burger returned and told me that the whole commander and all the cattle had crossed the line. And so he marched onwards. It was only the next morning as he sat with his men that he was told about the cattle going missing the previous night. The drivers had lost their way and they had eventually stampeded the herd through the gap in the fence, but that had finally woken up the blockhouse inmates who opened fire, killing 20 oxen. Later, Debate read about this incident in an English paper and chortled. This paper declared that I had driven a great herd of cattle in front of me to break down the fencing. This is the way the English write the reports, he says scathingly. The commander saddled up and rode onwards for three days. Meanwhile, Debet received a heliograph message that the British column had reached the blockhouse line, realised he was gone, and returned to Kronstadt and Heilbronn. There were a few more incidents involving the Boers in this region, but that's for later this month. Right now, we must shift our gaze back to General Jan Smuts, who has been busy writing letters. In fact, he wrote a 14,000-word letter to Delaray and planning further action in the North Cape. They had found their way to Kakamas, which was a small irrigation colony on the south bank of the Orange River, where Smuts and his commander had stopped for a fortnight. Our young narrator Denise Rates had swum in the swiftly flowing Orange River every day while they waited. As soon as General Smuts had completed his arrangements with the guerrilla bands, many of whom rode in from the desert to meet him, we returned south, reaching Tontelbos again towards the second week in February. There they halted again, allowing their horses to graze on the cropped wheat lands. Smuts was fretting about the location of his second-in-command, Commandant van Deventer. He had been missing now for well over a month, and Smuts had no idea where he was. They made their way to the Fish River, where rumour had it that Van Deventer was hiding out somewhere. The rumour was correct. He was more than hiding out. He was at that moment indulging in a full-blown firefight with an English unit near the town of Calvinia. We rode all that night and towards daylight heard the sound of gunfire and small arms and saw a red glare in the sky. Quickening our pace, we reached a farmhouse called Middlepost at dawn and found two or three men here in charge of a dozen wounded. Van Deventer was apparently trapped over the nearby kopje by a unit of English, armed with machine guns and one artillery piece. As Smuts ordered the men to head out to support the English, the British field gun opened fire. A shell came tearing at us, says Rates. A local schoolmaster named Hugo, who had just joined Smuts' commander, was galloping alongside Rates when he was hit. The shell burst on us with a roar, but although I was nearer the gun, neither my mule nor I received a scratch, but when the smoke cleared... I saw my companion was badly hit. Hugo was swaying in his saddle, blood streaming from his chest. He dropped his rifle and fell forward. Surely he was mortally wounded. Then he recovered himself and said he was not going to give the gunners the satisfaction of knowing they had hit anyone. So, raising himself, he rode for the cover of the hill. Rates lost sight of Hugo as more shells rained down on the charging boers. He took a second to retrieve the schoolteacher's rifle, who surely would no longer need it, and crested a small hill to the safety of the other side. There he found Hugo, who had fainted and fallen from his horse. General Smuts and the others were trying to staunch his wound. It was at the base of his left lung, and I fished out the twisted buckle of his braces and a cartridge clip with five rounds of ammunition, 
all of which had been driven into the cavity. The shell fragment that caused this terrible injury remained buried inside Hugo, too deep to retrieve. Rates believed he was a goner and gave him ten minutes to live. He was wrong. Two months later, miraculously, Hugo was alive and back in the saddle once more. But right now, Smuts and his men had to step back from what they thought was the last time they'd see Hugo and dashed to where Commandant van Deventer crouched on the ridge above. This was the first time that General Smuts had come among them since the parting in Somerset East, and there were cheers and shouts of greeting when they saw him. Van Deventer beckoned them over, and as they crawled to the top of the ridge and looked into the shallow valley below, they saw an interesting sight, as Raids called it. Immediately below, on the level ground by the banks of a sprite, stood some hundred and twenty English convoy wagons, most of them burning fiercely to the crackle of exploding rifle ammunition, for every wagon seemed to carry several cases. Scattered amongst these wagons were dead men and horses, and then an amazing sight. Live horses were grazing nearby, ignoring the exploding ammunition and the fires. Van Deventer explained what had happened. The previous day, the commander had spotted the convoy and opened fire. It was a kind of stalemate, as the English were well protected, so the firing died away that night. Then the Boers crept down to the wagons and set them alight, causing the explosions. The two forces were now facing each other with the burning wagons between. Smuts had galloped into a fierce firefight, where neither side was willing to give an inch. What would happen? That's for next episode. So until then, please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. You can also send me a message on Twitter at Des Latham or through the website abwarpodcast.com. And a special note of thanks to Canthan and Sarah for your continued support. I really honor your valuable comments after all this time following the trials and tribulations of these men and women of the felt. So until next week, goodbye. Een zonder gedaan langs die moeier vierste val, het zee voor oorlogsdagen bleef. O, breng mij terug naar die Oud-Ransval, daar waar mijn Sari woont. Daar onder in die mil is bij die groen door een boom, daar woont mijn Sari Mare. Daar onder in die mil is bij die groen door een boom, daar woont mijn Sari Mare.